Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. One of my favorite things to do with my kids is to sit and to read the Bible with them. And we have the Action Bible. It's like the Bible in cartoon form, which is amazing. It's just so much, makes a lot more sense than most of the other Bibles that I've read. And my middle child, she really loves her Action Bible and she'll read it all day long if she could and just look at the pictures. And, but she's got some requirements when I read the Bible for her. Some of them are that they had Bible stories. I've got three daughters, so there's a bit of a feminism movement coming up in my house. And, and one of the stories is the, the story, one of the requirements for me to read the story is there has to be a woman in the story and it has to be long. Because she likes lots of stories. There aren't many Bible stories that have women in them and are long. So our list is limited. And we rehash some of the stories. And from time to time, I allow them to read them. They allow me to read them a story that's maybe short and has a woman in them. And one of the stories that we revisit from time to time is one of those weird stories that, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But from time to time, I read the Bible and I read a story and I'm like, what on earth was that about? I don't know if you guys, you guys have Henny, you guys don't have that problem ever. <laughs> I've got that problem from time to time. And I remember as a kid for the longest time, one of the stories we get to offer now, because there's a woman in it, she's called Delilah. And it's a story of Samson. But there's a woman in it, so we allowed reading it sometimes. And I guess a little bit older, I have to kind of explain to my daughters what this prostitute thing really is. And... And there's a story of Samson. And he is this incredibly crazy strong guy. And he walks around just killing people for fun. And then he kills lions. And then he wants to marry this woman that he's not meant to marry. And funny riddles that don't make sense. And out of this eater came something to eat. And I even get the riddle confused now. Out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the something came something sweet. It's the word I'm missing. Anyway, it probably wasn't in English anyway to start with. And these riddles, and then this guy goes and he meets this woman who he's infatuated with, and he's not even meant to be close to her because she's like the arch enemy of their nation that's trying to destroy their nation. The Philistines, and she's a Philistine, and he keeps going to her and she also happens to be a prostitute and she asks him, how are you so strong and what's your great strength? And he tells her, but he lies to her. And she goes and she calls the Philistines while he falls asleep to come and arrest him. And you'd think after two or three times of this happening, he sort of gets the message that she's trying to kill him. But he keeps going back to her and eventually he tells her, and that's where we pick up the story in, in Judges 16, verse 17. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her, which was a really dumb thing to do. My hair has never been cut, he confessed. For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as anyone else. And then he falls asleep in her lap again and she calls the Philistine armies or the garrison or whatever to come and arrest him. And they shave his head and guess what? His strength has left him. And just between us, that's one of the saddest verses in all of scripture right there for me. 
simply says, and Samson did not know that the Spirit of God had departed from him. Samson didn't know. Such a sad, sad time to which Moses, not Moses, Samson's life had, had descended. But I don't know if you, maybe you didn't have this problem. I had this problem when I was a kid. And now reading it again to my kids, this problem comes up again. Why on earth the hair? It's not like you stole Popeye's spinach, you know, and he can't eat the spinach anymore, and that's what gives his body strength. It's just this hair that's never been cut. And I used to read this, and I'd go, this is the weirdest thing ever. But it is how it is, and I'd carry on. And I never understood it. I never got, why is Samson hair? Why is his power tied up in his hair? Isn't that the weirdest concept ever? But right in the middle, there's this funny word that gets used in this translation here, Judges 16, 17. My hair has never been cut, he confessed. Why has my hair never been cut? For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. We're going to get back to that in a moment. Then I want us to jump to another passage that most of us know very, very well. And it's in the Old Testament, which makes us all feel a lot better about it. Leviticus 20 verse 26, because it's not the New Testament theology that the modern church loves digging into. God speaking to you and to me in the Old Testament, if we were there. And he said, you must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. We were just singing about that. You are are holy and there's something about God's presence that responds when we recognize his holiness. I have set you apart from all the other people to be my very own. Just in this, there's so much that I need to sort of highlight as background. The first thing is that God is holy. And then if you're anything like me, you're like, yes, obviously God is holy, but what is holy? I remember when I just gotten saved, came to know the Lord, I really had this desire to start preaching And then, like a good preacher, I realized, well, I guess if I'm going to preach one day, I need a sermon to preach. So I sat in my bed at Varsity, and I began to work out my first sermon, and I still haven't finished it. And it was a sermon on holiness. I began to dig into this thing about holiness. What does it mean to be holy? What is holiness even? God is holy. He says He is holy, and you and I must. He is holy. We must be holy. What is holiness? Holiness at its core is a very simple image. It simply means to be set apart, to be separated. My wife was pregnant seven and a half years ago with our firstborn. She was incredibly nauseous. At some stages, it was, she had a, her pregnancies were really, really rough. And she went through phases where she could hardly eat anything, but there were a few things that she could eat. And it was the weirdest things, and it would change from time in any time to time, and anyone who's ever had a pregnant wife, you would know what that's like. So we went on holiday one year, and at that stage, my wife could eat nachis and only nachis. I know it sounds weird. She was living on a diet of nachis for a while. So we went on holiday, and we bought boxes of nachis to take on holiday with us because that's all she could eat. And we stacked these boxes, and they were one set one side. They were literally holy nachis. Woe is he who goes near the notches. And it's a weird image, but that's exactly what holiness is set aside, set apart for a very specific use. 
And then it gets a little bit really weird, and that's why I've never finished that sermon, because God is holy. God has been set aside, separated. Another big word we can use, consecrated, for his very own special use. And he comes to the Old Testament believers, and he says to them, you are holy. He looks at the people of Israel, you are a special people, consecrated, set aside for my special use. Every Israelite, every Hebrew was meant to be holy, already set aside for God's special use. That obviously is a a mirror, as it were, a symbol of where we are today as the church of Jesus. That every one of us as Christians, as believers, are meant to be holy, set aside for God's purposes. I love how um, Orkert even started the message of the worship this morning with that. We are set aside for God. God, half past five is not too early for you. I am for you, God. My life is set aside for you. And we look at the New Testament equivalent as this in, at, of this in, in a few moments. I just want to lay down a, a really good foundational understanding of what is this Nazarite thing. Because this is where the beauty of this comes into. And maybe before I say that, I love that the church flow that we are part of. And if you're a member of this church... If you're visiting, I really believe this is part of what's something that God has given us as a church and many churches, not just us. But I love that we get to be part of a church where the question is not, how far can I push the boundaries of serving God so that I'm still serving Him but only just? What is acceptable in God's eyes and where sort of is the limit of the acceptability? And I'm going to serve him just on the inside because I need to get to heaven and I I love Jesus, but I really want to enjoy the world as much as I can as well. I love that that is not the core of who we are. That as a church family, our our cry is, God, I want to serve you. As Orchid shared this morning, I want to serve you with everything, God. It's not, God, how far can I stretch it but still be within your grace if you want to use that word. But, God, how close can I get? How surrendered can I be? Not just doing just enough, but, God, what, how close can I get, God? How much can I press into your presence and that total surrender? And as we look at this concept of holiness, consecration, it brings us right back to Samson. The Nazarite, maybe just because some of us are a little bit confused, a Nazarite and a Nazarene are not the same thing. You guys are Joe Burgers. Not because we can fry you and eat you with sauce, like hamburgers from Hamburg, but you are Joe Burgers from Johannesburg. And what makes you a Joe Burger is you come from Joburg. What makes someone a Nazarene is they come from Nazareth. So Jesus was a Nazarene because he grew up in Nazareth. He was born in, you guys all know this, Bethlehem. Then he went and lived in Egypt for a couple of years. And then when that king had died, when there'd been a change of government, there was a government that wanted to kill and get rid of all of the boys. And they kind of had to run away with Jesus to keep him alive. They came back to Nazareth. And there he grew up as a Nazarene. Very different word. Although there may be some parallels and a lot of people kind of have a lot of theories about this, but we're not going to get into those contextures. Nazarite would be something very different. Because interesting, the word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce, but something along the lines of Nazir. And Nazir simply means 
one who is set apart and consecrated. So we see this whole theme of holiness again coming through Samson's life. That he was a Nazarite. What does it mean? It simply means that from birth, in his case, his mom had taken him and set him apart. Set him apart for the purposes of God. He was consecrated. But he was consecrated within the context of living amongst a consecrated people. That's going to be so important for us as we go forward. Every single Israelite was holy and set apart to God. And yet, in Numbers chapter 6, we read the Nazarite vow. The vow that had to do and was meant to, in a large sense, dictate and regulate Samson's life. And that chair just did a giraffe drinking water. The legs just go out like that. You okay? Saved yourself, well done. Numbers chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, either men or women, take a special vow of a Nazarite, can we just also interrupt myself here? You will notice that he is not saying I'm introducing a new concept to you. Moses here speaking to the people of Israel and God to Moses to the people of Israel. They is not saying, guys, I've got this new radical idea that none of you have ever thought of. The language that's, that is used here makes us, gives us a strong impression that this was already an established practice, the idea of a Nazarite. What Moses just is doing is he's giving definition and direction to what it means to be a Nazarite. The other thing which is important, either men or women, this is a fully inclusive practice. If any of the people, either man or woman, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart, and we're going to see that word coming through all the time, because Nazar, holy, set apart, exactly the same wording that's used every time. Setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way. The reason it says in a special way is because every Israelite is already set apart to God. But yet there would be some who would set themselves apart in a special way. This is what they must do. They must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice. And they must not eat grapes or raisins. So this is more than just the alcohol element that's at play here. We'll look at this a little bit later. As long as they are bound by the Nazareth vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from a grapevine. Not even the grape seeds or skins. And it's interesting, just as an aside, Samson got drunk at least a couple of times in his life that we know of from Scripture, so he didn't pay much attention to that. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled. So another thing we can see there is this would normally be for a period of time. Jewish history, tradition teaches us that if it was unspecified, if someone takes a Nazarite vow and they don't explicitly indicate the time, the default would be 30 days. Sometimes they would speak about a double vow that would be 60 days, but the default, the norm would be 30 days. Some people in scripture, like Samson as an obvious example, was a Nazarite from birth. His mom made the vow on his behalf and obviously he didn't pay much attention to his mom's vow. Then there were others, most likely that um, Samuel 
was a Nazarite of sorts, perhaps not a full Nazarite. Remember, his mom made a vow to the Lord, and he also, there were certain restrictions of abstention upon his life from birth. And similarly for John the Baptist was most likely a Nazarite or had some form of the Nazarite vow upon his life. And there are others through Scripture as well. Throughout the time of their vow, they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long and they must not go near a dead body. Samson was near a lot of dead bodies, primarily because he killed them. During the entire period of their vow to the Lord, Even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister, they must not defile themselves. For the hair on their head is their symbol of their separation to God. It's when we begin to dig into this and we begin to understand that Moses' power, Moses, keeping stuck on Moses today, Samson's power had very little to do with his hair in a physical sense, but had everything to do with his consecration to God. So at the moment as Philistines came and cut off his hair, it wasn't that Samson's hair suddenly flowed out of his body. It was that his being set apart, the special vow, the way in which God had moved upon his life, that thing that was holy unto God had been violated. And the thing about Samson's life, it wasn't just that one time, that was almost as if it was the final straw that broke the camel's back. It was that final straw where God said, Samson, your violation of what is holy and pure, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And Samson did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And then it carries on, and there are a whole bunch of of different rules and laws, which for time's sake we're not going to read today. I encourage you at home to go and read them, not so much for the sake of the sacrifices, but it speaks about a variety of different sacrifices, etc., that need to be made in a way in which to redeem the vow. So you couldn't really drink wine or eat grape by accident. You couldn't cut your hair by accident. But someone could die close to you by accident. And so there was special provision in the case of if you were busy and someone died next to you, you'd become defiled. And then there was a special provision how to kind of rescue the vow that you'd made. And it goes through all of that. And obviously, I, I hope we know and understand that Jesus has totally, fully become the fulfillment of every one of the sacrifices for us. So you and I today, even if you wanted to, we could not, for practical or, and for spiritual reasons, take the law of the Nazarite, or the vow of the Nazarite today. Not in its original form, because firstly, well, let me carry on. So it jumped a whole bunch of stuff. And then let's go to verse 13. At the conclusion of the time of separation as Nazarites, they must each go to the entrance of the tabernacle and offer their sacrifices to the Lord. And then there's a bunch of sacrifices. And what they must do is they must cut their hair off and they must pour their, they shave their hair and throw the hair that they've shaved. They must throw on the altar and it must be burnt in a special way. And very last verse, 21. This is the ritual law. So before that, after the ceremony, the Nazarites may again drink wine. In other words, the restrictions are lifted and they can carry on as normal. And this is the ritual law of the Nazarites, who vow to bring these offerings to the Lord. They may also bring additional offerings if they can afford it. And they must be careful to do whatever they vowed when they set themselves apart as Nazarites. 
So this vow would go hand in hand with something specific in Moses. Sorry, not Moses. In Samson's, Moses brought the law. Samson's life, it was he was dedicated to be a judge to God from birth. Similarly with Samuel. Similarly with John the Baptist. Paul's life, we read of at least once where he goes and he takes a Nazarite vow just for the sake of looking good in front of the other Jews. But there's another time where he shaves his head because he made a vow, Scripture says. And that most likely could refer to a Nazarite vow of sorts that he had taken for a time. But it's interesting, a couple of things about this vow that I want to mention that's so important we get. The first one, it was always voluntary. It was always voluntary. There was never a you have to take this vow moment, except for poor Samson, he was born with it. But as a rule, it was voluntary. And secondly, there was no asceticism in this. There was nothing about punishing my body. It was never take a whip and whip yourself and punish and make yourself go through a really hard time so that you can become more holy. That was never what it was about. It was a time of setting yourself apart, consecration, being a Nazarite, a set-apart one unto Christ. As much as you and I want to, we cannot Take the law of the Nazarite in the original form today. For practical reason, firstly, you've got to take all of these sacrifices and you've got to burn their hair and all of that. And where are you going to do that? Where are you going to find a priest who's going to do the sacrifice for you and burn their hair and the other stuff that needs to happen? Number one. And number two, spiritually, we cannot because Jesus has already fulfilled the sacrifices. Even if we could find someone, doing it again would be futile. But what I do think is important is that hidden within this vow, I believe there are some principles that you and I can carry into our modern Christian New Testament covenant of grace Christian lives today. Firstly, is that every single one of us who are followers of Jesus, God has already poured his holiness upon us and we are holy You will be holy because I am holy, Jesus said in the book of Leviticus. And we're going to see now Peter repeated in the book of Peter in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament instruction. But there are a couple of things that perhaps you and I can pray about and can think about upon our lives. God is not something in my life that perhaps I don't just want to be holy in a normal sense, set apart in a normal sense. And holiness in this context doesn't refer to a score. It's not a measure. It's not like I'm going to be more holy and I'm going to get more brownie points in the eyes of God. That's not what it's about. But God, perhaps if there was a Nazarite vow that for a time, for a season, we could step aside and I could choose to be more holy, not more holy in the sense of a score, but more set apart, Lord God. Just deliberately abstaining from certain things for a period of times. For a period of time for a significant growth or a specific goal that I'm working towards. Something that I'm trusting you for in my life. I think there's a strong element of a spiritual parallel for that in the New Testament. And we see that with Paul who had taken a vow and he, he even went as far as to shave his head after that vow. Why would someone do that? I want to hold before us just a couple of reasons why one might consider taking a vow of a Nazarite. James 4 verse 8 Firstly, because of intimacy. Jesus says, come close to, James writes in the scriptures, come close to God and God 
will come close to you. Watch what he goes on to say. Yes, firstly, God will respond when we choose to draw near. If we choose to set ourselves apart from God, guess what? God is going to respond and he will draw near to us. But what else does Scripture say there? Scripture also says, New Testament, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. See, sometimes I believe there's a time of consecration that we need to go to as Christians in our lives to declutter. Sometimes there's a time of consecration where we need to step back in our lives and say, I have found my loyalty divided between God and the world. At the moment, in the build-up to our, our global fast and prayer early next month, just in Pretoria, we've decided we want to take a month of consecration. That's a little bit where this message and some other messages like this, we've just been preaching about fasting and consecration this month, and where they've born from. And sort of, we've just encouraged everyone in church just to give up something as a form of consecration to God for this month of February. Personally, I decided I'm going to give up entertainment, just TV, sport, everything that I do as a, as a way of entertainment. God, I'm just surrendering that to you just simply because I want to declutter from that, God. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things per se, except that I realize probably now more than I did before I even decided. You know how hard it is, especially in the first couple of days for me when there's that moment of dead time. To not reach for the phone. To not reach for the TV remote. To not reach for the web browser. I realize how, how easily my heart gets drawn into all of those things. And as I said, not one of them per se is necessarily wrong. But I've just discovered again something so beautiful in terms of deliberately stepping back and saying, God, I'm choosing to draw near to you. God, I want to deliberately take that time to draw near to you. I deliberately, God, want to take that time to clarify the loyalty that's in my own heart. God, would you wash my hands? Would you purify my heart? That could be one reason why one could undergo sort of a time of special being set apart, a parallel of the Nazarite. Secondly, to do with our calling. Acts 13 there was a church in Antioch, a fantastic church, and they had prophets and teachers, amongst which Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, who would later become Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, consecrating themselves to God, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. You see this word again, set apart. Holy, Nazarite. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called him. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on him and sent them off. Sometimes we would go through this because of a sense of calling upon our life. Maybe a ministry calling, but perhaps something else. Maybe a new season, a word we like to use. A new career, a new job, a new business, a, a new thing that we're stepping into our lives. And perhaps we want to take a moment at the beginning of that and say, God, I want to consecrate this to you. And Lord, as a form of consecration, as a form of giving this to you, there are certain things in my life that I'm going to withhold myself from for this season, not because they're inherently wrong, but simply God as a way of setting apart for you. 
simply as a way of saying, God, I, I choose not to do this because every time I don't do this, I'm reminded of the vow that I've made. That God, this is for you. That could be another reason. A third one has to do with authority. We have in the Spirit, the anointing, the enablement of the Holy Spirit, and there are a number of examples we could use, but the most obvious one is the one we've already read around Samson. Samson was gifted, anointed, empowered by the Spirit to do some pretty spectacular things. What was that all based in? It was based in the fact that he was consecrated to God. Sometimes we're trusting God for an increase in our spiritual authority, a level up, as it were, some form of spiritual breakthrough and a time of consecration can be powerful in that way, a time of setting ourselves apart. And then collectively, but also individually, we read in Joshua 3 verse 5, Joshua comes and they're just about to go and take the city of Jericho. They're going to march around this. And that's another one of the stories that probably one day I'll understand, but I don't. You walk around the city seven, six days, once a day in complete silence. The seventh day, you walk around that same city six times in complete silence. And apart from the fact that you get your active day because your pedometer says you walked a lot today. On the seventh time, you shout and scream as loud as you can all the way around. And guess what suddenly is going to happen? The city's walls are going to fall over. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? One of those weird moments, but how God breathes and he does something that we don't always understand in the natural. But just before that, watch what happens. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, set yourself apart, take a moment. And this consecration wasn't a very pleasant consecration for the males. It involved a really small little knife in a Jewish tradition. But consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Sometimes our consecration is in preparation for a move of God. God, I'm expecting breakthrough. God, I'm expecting that you're going to do something really amazing. And I'm setting myself apart in anticipation and preparation, God, of what you are about to do. The Nazarite vow spoke of three specific things. You'll remember them. The first one was not an abstinence from an alcohol only, but abstinence from alcohol, alcoholic drink, and anything that had to do with grapes. The second thing was the hair. Don't cut your hair for as long as you have the vow. And in a normal 30-day vow, it probably wouldn't be a problem because, you know, one month of haircut doesn't, probably doesn't look too bad. But then also, thirdly, from the dead. So what could be ways in which those we find parallels for where we are today? Well, the first one speaks about being separate in our diet. There's a difference between consecrating and just dieting. It's important that we clarify this difference. Sometimes we diet for health reasons, and if you need to eat separately or differently for health reasons, then please do do that. Don't stop doing that. But don't say you're doing it for God. You're not doing it for God. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it because your body needs it. You need to be healthy, and that is a good way to live and to eat. Fasting, in its essence, always speaks about food. It's impossible to read the Hebrew word fasting outside of eating food. And we talked today about fasting, like I probably did a little bit earlier, fasting from entertainment, a Hebrew guy which says, you're not even making sense now. But it is a form of consecration, abstaining from. But fasting, at its core, always speaks about food. 
There's something about our giving up of our food. We see it with Esther. For three days, the whole nation is not to eat or drink anything because she's going to go to the king. And throughout history, there's this principle of fasting that comes through. And fasted life simply speaks about a deliberate abstention from certain, certain sources of pleasure. Read in Luke 9, if anyone wants to be Jesus' follower, what do we need to do? We need to give up our own way, take up our cross daily and follow him. Sometimes there are sources of pleasure that we deliberately need to give up. And many of the sources of pleasure come from food. For the last many years, I've just lived a fasted life in terms of certain things that I just don't eat. Not because there's anything wrong with them. Not because I ever tell anyone else they can't eat them. It's just something in my heart that I've decided, God, I'm not going to eat these. Out of response to something that God spoke to me about. You know the amazing blessing that I found in that is every time I'm in a situation, every time I'm in a moment where that happens, I'm reminded of the fact that I've chosen to be set apart for God. It's an amazingly powerful reminder for me. Something else about wine and grapes in the Hebrew culture, that would be part of every meal. They wouldn't be able to drink water. It's a little bit like they had a Cape Town scenario. A lot of the water would be infected. You wouldn't always drink water, but there would always be wine to drink. And the wine wouldn't necessarily have a very high alcoholic content, but because it had a slight alcoholic content, it lasted a lot longer And it wouldn't go off quickly. And there would always be wine. And people would drink wine. With any meal, you would drink wine. Simply because it was safer to drink than the grapes. And grapes were part of their culture. There would be grapes in almost every meal. And so not to eat of wine, drink of wine, or eat of anything that comes from the vine would be a very deliberate, clear message. You would be a little bit awkward in social settings when someone's created food for you. Separate in diet. Secondly, there would be a separation in appearance. Not cutting your hair, you would look different. We even read in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians that for a man to have long hair is shameful. And we see a great paradox here that part of the Nazarite vow would be having long hair and yet having long hair would be shameful. And so it would speak about a separation in appearance. Separation in how I look and I'm willing to be and look deliberately different. If people look at me, I'm going to be untended. I think in a modern sense, a part of a consecration would be that. I know some people who need to fast from gym for a month. Not because exercise is wrong, but because, hey, they'd wake up at half past five. Okot was speaking about it earlier. They'd wake up at half past five to go to gym, but don't ask them to wake up at half past five to come and lead worship or wake up at half past five to have a quiet time. Sometimes we just need to just bring our priorities into order again. And sometimes just a fasting, just an abstaining. Exercise is brilliant. Do exercise. But sometimes we need to just reorder those priorities in our lives. But the hair spoke about a willingness to be separate in appearance, to be obviously different. I love how Peter phrases this. So you must live as God's obedient children. You are God's obedient children. So live like God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. So what you did was fine then. But now you must be holy. Wait a second. This is in the New New Testament. Now you must 
Be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy because I am holy. As Christians, I believe you and I, every one of us, should live holy lives all the time. We should endeavor to be holy, to be willing to be different, to be willing to stand up when others won't stand up, to be willing to swim against the stream, to be willing to be instantly recognizable that Christian is different. He doesn't look like the rest of us. And if there goes a little bit of worldly shame with that, we should be willing to carry that. And then the last one, association. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read through to beginning of chapter 7 because sometimes we forget when these letters were written, Paul didn't make little superscript 1, 2, 3 at the beginning of each verse and then a big 7 because a new chapter starts. This is one letter. and Sometimes we get stuck in the chapter designations and we miss some of the message. But don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be your partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple, which is you, and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them. We see this principle of separation again, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things. And I will welcome you. I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. And because we have these promises, what are these promises? That God will be our father, that he will welcome us into his presence. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Let us work towards completely being set apart for God. What I must say is important for us to read here. He is not saying we must not have relationship and be around unholy people, ungodly people, people who don't follow, not followers of Christ. Later on in the second letter, he speaks about that explicitly. He says, how are you going to impact the world if you're not around the world? That's not what he's speaking about. But he's speaking about where is our heart's commitment? Where is our loyalty? Who have we bound ourselves to? Where are the people that are the influences in our lives? Because what righteous, what communion does unholiness have with holiness? And so I want to encourage us. Be holy, as the scripture says, because I am holy. Too often in modern church we read that and we say that's an Old Testament imperative, a must. But it's a New Testament must. Every Christian, just like every Hebrew, is holy unto God, is separated, is set apart. God has cleansed us and washed us. And maybe that's so important for me just to emphasize again that our holiness has nothing to do with our justification. Our holiness in this context that I'm speaking about today has nothing to do with our salvation. It has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus crossed the cross of Christ and his blood is 100% sufficient for all. We don't have to go through the sin sacrifice that the Nazarite had to. And I love that. The Nazarite, at the end of this time of setting himself apart, had to bring a sin offering as the first offering. 
Just as a reminder that despite my whole time of setting myself apart, I am still a sinner. And that's still pointing towards the cross of Christ, which is the only sacrifice that is sufficient to wash my sin away. That my holiness, my setting myself apart for the season, has done nothing to cleanse me from my sin. I want to say that clearly. We're not talking here in any way about a substitution for the gift of God through the cross of Christ. What we're talking about is a lifestyle of setting ourselves apart, of being different. And you and I, like every Israelite, if you are a believer, you are already meant to be and set apart for the cause of Christ. Your lifestyle should already reflect that. But I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to consider at some stage in your life saying, God, this Nazarite thing, this special vow thing, this setting myself apart, God, for a time, for a season in my life, Lord, I want to do this as a season of growth, as a season of intimacy, a season of drawing near. You'll be amazed at what happens if we're willing to set ourselves apart for God. How he responds, how he draws near, how he breathes over us. It doesn't have to be a lifelong thing, but it's important. It has to be a voluntary thing. And I want to echo this again. It's not about punishing yourself. That's missing the whole thing totally. It is simply about a form of abstinence so that I can focus on drawing near to God. As we close, I want to finish with Romans chapter 12, a passage I think someone mentioned a little bit earlier. And so, dear brothers and sisters, you see, we started fully inclusive, men and women, we still are. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. I plead with you, give your body to God because of all he has done with you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. It's so important that we allow God to change the way we think, and that's one of the reasons why Bible school is such an important part of our spiritual growth time where we allow the word to cause us to think differently because if you do that then you will learn to know God's will for you which is good pleasing and perfect can I pray for us and then I'm going to hand over to Johan or Jan George father I want to thank you this morning for this incredible group of people God a group of people that I know you've breathed over already Lord that your presence was so powerful here again this morning God as you draw us near, God, I thank you that just like the people of Israel, every single one of us who has stepped into relationship with you is already holy, is already set apart for you. And we choose to live that way, God. We choose to live holy unto you, which is our reasonable service. Lord, this morning we're also so aware of this little thing of the Nazarite, the being set apart, Lord God. Father, I pray over every heart here, Lord Jesus, that, Lord, you would lead us to be set apart uniquely as you wish us to be set apart, Lord. Not out of compulsion, Lord, not, out, not in the same way that the people around us are, but that every one of us, Lord, there would be certain things, even if just for seasons and moments in our lives, we would choose to be set apart from simply so we may draw near to you, God.
that in a sense, Lord, we may understand the power of consecration, of fasting, of drawing unto you. Lord, I specifically also want to pray over every one of us. God, I pray that we would be transformed, Lord. That we would be transformed by the way and in the way we think, by the power of your word, Lord Jesus. Lord, above all of that, I want to thank you for the power of the cross. I want to thank you, Jesus, that on the cross you made the complete and final sacrifice. That it's your blood that washes us. That it's your blood that cleanses us, Lord God. It's your blood which is every sacrifice that has ever been needed, that was completely fulfilled. And there's no ways we can even begin to think that we can add to that, Lord Jesus. Jesus, your blood truly is sufficient. So I just pray grace over this church. God, I pray that we continue to grow and flourish, that we continue to grow in the knowledge of you, Lord, and that we continue to grow in their being set apart, being holy, being consecrated for your purposes. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.